as I mentioned, we're transitioning in, in today. We've been studying recently First and Second Peter. That was after a long study through the book of Exodus. And also we looked at a few Psalms. I said in, in the transition, before we decided what book we were going to study next, we would take a few Psalms. So we went through the first five. And um, I asked David last week, um, what book should we handle next? And he says, well, we did Genesis and Exodus. We should probably should do Leviticus next. And so I, I, I took that under advisement and started studying, studying quietly on my own. And uh, so Thursday morning, uh, Allison comes down. I've been studying the Bible for a while. Many of us are getting up a little earlier in the morning <laughs> after, after the last and last Sunday, uh, convicted by that. So I, I came to Allison, and Allison said, Chuck, what are you studying? And I said, I'm all over the Bible. I'm all over New Testament, Old Testament, all over the Scriptures. And she says, well, what, what, what are you studying for? And I said, I'm working for the lesson for this Sunday. She said, what that's going to be on? And I said, we're going to study the book of Leviticus. And Allison, her face just dropped. She had a look of abject horror <laughs> on her face. And she, she couldn't help herself. She just blurted it out. She says, why? And the world, are we studying Leviticus? Why that book? And she said, whose idea was that? And so I thought about it for a microsecond, and I said, that was David Adams's idea. Threw him right under the bus. And then I, and then I threw myself under as well. I said, I thought it was a good idea too, though. So, so uh, uh, But she was saying, well, why are we studying it? She said, you mean the whole church is going to be studying the book of Leviticus? And it's like, you know, like we have a church of hundreds of people here. But, uh, but uh, I thought, you know, that's a really good question. Why are we studying the book of Leviticus? And Allison also said, you know, she said, Chuck, the people who don't like you, I know that's hard to imagine that there are people there who, who don't. She says, you know, the, the religious people who don't like you, who think you're into the law and the rules and all the Old Testament stuff, and you don't appreciate the grace of God and the nice, warm, ooey-gooey stuff in the Bible. It says, all those people that are out there, it says, if they hear you're teaching the book of Leviticus, you're just giving them more ammunition. I said, well, they don't listen to what I teach anyway. So that, that, I'm not worried about that too much. But I thought, I thought it's a good question. And you know, fortunately, we locked all the doors so no one can leave here who hear what you're teaching on Leviticus. But, but uh, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. But, but this is... For Christians, maybe the most unpopular book in the entire Bible to study. So many Christians avoid it, or maybe they'll read it once, and they'll skip over it uh, after that. And, and so the objections that I hear to studying the book of Leviticus, and, and they're, they're logical objections, but I want to consider this. And really, the class today is focused on answering the question Allison raised, which I'm sure is in the minds of many people, is why in the world should Christians today study the book of Leviticus? Uh, so some of the objections that I hear include, we'll say, well, this book, book is focused primarily on the Old Testament sacrificial system and technical rules and regulations about that for the priests and the sacrifices. And that system was done away with at the crucifixion of Jesus, and so therefore is completely irrelevant. That's, that's, so there's one objection. Uh, many people find the book hard to understand, or boring, which is even worse. And it starts, with a, it starts off with a lot of details about animal sacrifices, 
Some people consider the God presented in this book to be kind of harsh, that he is, uh, he, he's, he's, he's requiring animals to be killed and there's lots of blood and gore and they're dissecting animals and, and, and burning up their bodies, things like that. And the other thing is many of us are looking for practical help in the challenges that we're facing in life. We're looking at the emotional challenges that we're facing and, and uh, they think, well, this is certainly not going to help me with any of the challenges I'm facing in my life or in my, my own faith personally. They don't consider it to be relevant. So, so even though Allison asked the question after thinking about it for a while, I said, well, you know, one of the reasons is we did Genesis and we did Exodus. So it's kind of like a full, so we'll do the full set of the whole five books of Moses to put that out there. But Allison said this morning, she said, you know, Chuck, I'm really looking forward to the class today. So she after after, after uh, reflecting on it. But but I think this this is this is something that, that many here who are listening to this may wonder why would why would Christians study the book of Leviticus today? And I wanna I want to look at some reasons why this is important and relevant to us today. And so so Allison, sorry, sorry if I was uh, uh, making a little fun of, of your comment, but it was it was a genuine, it was a genuine reaction, and it was a sincere reaction, and, and I appreciate that. And that's, how, that's honestly that's how a lot of people feel. So, uh, 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 Paul said that the Old Testament is full of things that are useful for us. In Romans fifteen four, after quoting from Psalm sixty nine, and he's Paul's making a point that we should be living to meet the needs of others, not just to please ourselves. He says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Whatever things were written in the past were written for us. They're written for the Christians for our learning, not just for the Jews. So that's one point to consider. Also, a scripture that many of us are familiar with, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Uh, Paul is, is writing to Timothy, and he says, From childhood you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness, the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. So so that's he's he's talking to Timothy about the scriptures that he knew from childhood which would be presumably he's talking about the Old Testament here since his mother was was Jewish. And he says that not only that it's all inspired by God but it's all that all of it is profitable. It's all useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if we want to be thoroughly equipped, we need the Old Testament scriptures. They're not only inspired, but they're useful for us to be thoroughly equipped. So this is one of the reasons why we really encourage, we we do expository preaching uh, and teaching here from the New Testament, the Old Testament. We encourage everyone to be reading through the Bible, New Testament, Old Testament, to read read all the scriptures if you want to read through it once a year or on some regular basis. Uh, another reason that it's good to consider this book is that 
understanding the temple practices and the law of Moses are very helpful as a background for understanding many things that occur in other places in the scriptures, in the historical books, in the Psalms, in, in, in the writings of the prophets. There are a lot of references to the temple sacrificial system. So if you understand how it works, you can better appreciate what they're talking about. And even in the Gospels, it's a backdrop for a lot of the things that are going on. Remember in the beginning of Luke, you have Zechariah is is on duty as a priest and he's offering incense at the time of at the time of the, of, uh, the evening prayer uh, in the dedication of the temple in Luke one and and then in Luke chapter two it talks about when Jesus is taken to the temple and they offer a sacrifice on his behalf it talks about the uh, you know two pigeons or or, or doves. And actually, that's a quote from Leviticus chapter 12, the, the sacrifice that Jesus, they gave for Jesus. So there's so many things that are tied in with as a backdrop for the Gospels, the, the whole system of the New Testament that Jesus was very much a part of. Also, the sacrificial system is really the backdrop for so much of the book of Hebrews, if you want to understand Hebrews. Hebrews is extremely important for Christians because it explains... What does it mean to live a life of faith in Hebrews 11? It, it talks in Hebrews about the righteous one will live by faith, and it talks about this is a, a way of life. It's a lifestyle that continues all the way through. And there's a contrast between the new covenant and the old covenant. The new covenant is so much more wonderful and excellent than the old covenant. And if you understand what they're talking about with the old covenant, you can appreciate that so much more in, in Hebrews 9 and 10. Also, the apostles and the New Testament writers use a lot of language that even if it's not quoting from Leviticus, it's drawing on the pictures in the book of Leviticus. Think about this in Romans chapter 12. After first 11 chapters of Romans talk about the, the whole Jew-Gentile issue. And then Romans chapter 12 is a major transition for what follows after that, in, in terms of real real practical advice. And he says, Paul starts, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. He's borrowing from the imagery of the Old Testament and the old sacrificial system to say how we should be living. And then he goes and fills in details of that. In Philippians 2.17, Paul refers to himself, and he says, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. So Paul says he's, he's pouring his life out like a drink offering. And he talks about that in, in numbers, but it's, it's all tied in with, with the sacrificial system in Leviticus. Another thing is... Uh, uh, there are a lot of things in, in the New Testament that are dealing with this whole question of the law. In Acts chapter 10, with Cornelius, the conversion of Cornelius' household, and Peter sees the vision, and he, you know, there's all, all these unclean animals from uh, Leviticus 11 that are in there that, that come down in, in a, a sheet three times from heaven, rise up, Peter, kill and eat. He says, oh no, no, I've never, I've never done that, because... 
because of what it says in Leviticus. I've never eaten anything unclean. And, and God is communicating to him through that imagery that the kingdom is going to be opened up to the Gentiles, to the people who don't follow the law of Moses. So Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 15, when the apostles gather together in Jerusalem to find out, to, to decide, what do we do with the Gentiles who are coming to faith? Do they have to follow the Mosaic law? Do they have to follow the requirements of the Levitical law or not? And they're wrestling with this question. Later on in Acts 21, when Paul gets into trouble, he goes into Jerusalem and the people are, uh, they're, they're asking the question uh, of him. There, there's rumors circulating around. Oh, this is the guy who is saying we don't have to follow the law of Moses anymore. That's why he goes and, and he he does the special special vows and goes into the temple area to show everybody, no, he is following the law of Moses. He's just teaching that the Gentiles don't have to. So there's a rumor about that. And, and that's what that's what Paul gets in trouble for in, in Acts uh, in Acts 21 to to, uh, to to 26 for the accusation that he is violating the law of Moses and telling other people to do the same thing. As I mentioned before, Romans, most of the book of Romans, chapters 1 to 11, is dealing with a whole question about the Jews and the Gentiles. What do we do with the law of Moses? How can the Gentiles be saved? How do we, how do we put that all together? It's not about, you know, uh, the, the, uh, uh, a lot of times Protestants will use this as a basis for the road to salvation. Here's how a person becomes a Christian. It's not what it's about. Romans chapter, Romans uh, chapters one to eleven are talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. What happened to the What happened to the Jews? What happened to the Law of Moses? How do you make sense out of these these two different worlds that are that are clashing with each other? And then Paul's letters to Galatians, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians. Again, a lot of times people take those teachings out of context, but that's what he's dealing with. What? Are we saved by following the law of Moses? Are we saved by the works of the law or not? And Paul has very strong language. And in Galatians, Paul uses the law of Moses to explain from the law of Moses that you're not saved by the law of Moses. And he, there's even, there's even <clears throat> quote, two quotes from Leviticus. He quotes from Leviticus 19.8 and Leviticus 18.15 uh, where it says from Leviticus... In Leviticus 18:15, the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. In uh, Galatians 3:12. So, one more reason to me for Christians to study this, and can people say, "Well, I'm not Jewish. Uh, these things are all for the Jews. What about today, where there's no issue with the Jews and the Gentiles in the church? And uh, I'm a Gentile. I came from a Gentile background." And uh, I believe, and I'll make the case for I believe that the Gentile converts were taught the law of Moses. Even though they didn't have to obey the law of Moses, they were taught the law of Moses. So first question, how do I know that the Gentile converts were taught the law of Moses? I wasn't there, and I'll, I'll provide my evidence for you. And then the second thing was, even if they... If the Gentiles didn't have to follow the law of Moses, why would people in the church teach the law of Moses to the Gentiles? Okay, um, I want to give an example here 
from, um, this is a book that I read to my grandson. It's called The Little Engine That Could. It's a very famous, famous story, Little Engine That Could. My, my grandson is two years old, and two years old, two-year-old uh, children are famous for certain behaviors, and he's he's a typical two-year-old, which is fine when you're two, not okay when you're four. You got to work through it. You got to help him. You got to help him with that. And he is a he likes to build things. We play with trains. He's he's big advocate of, of trains. We have little wooden wooden trains that my son had. Now he's playing with them, and we set up the trains. And you got to interlock them and build the bridges and, and, and then run the trains around them. Uh, they're all they're all wooden manual trains. And uh, so he loves trains, but when he can't fit the pieces together right, he gets very, very frustrated. And he does what a frustrated two-year-old will, will, will tend to do. And so one of the things we try to uh, read, he loves reading stories, we'll read stories to him, we'll read stories that uh, have many times a good moral behind him. And the little engine that could is the famous story about a little uh, a little steam engine that uh, the train broke down and the first two, it's, it's, it's almost like the, the story of the Good Samaritan, the first two trains that come along, they're big powerful trains, they're too busy to help. And then another, the third train comes by and the third train is, an, uh, is a, a very... Um, discouraged old train and the train says I can't do it I can't I just don't I can't do it I can't do it and then the, and then the little the little engine comes along he's very helpful he's very friendly and he's never done this before he's never pulled the train over the mountain but he says I think I can and he keeps saying that again I think I can I think I can I think he can and then finally he makes it over the top of the train so I read this to my grandson I say I think that's like you I think you're kind of like that 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 you can do it, that you you can do it. So uh, when he's having a tough time and is tempted to uh, to lose it with, with a task that he's working on, sometimes I'll just say to him, I think you can. I think you can. And he knows what I'm talking about. I say, I think you can do it, but if you need some help, you can ask for some help. And so we're helping him to overcome and to learn perseverance which is very helpful you know later on he'll be reading the book of hebrews hopefully so he'll get the get the idea that you've got to persevere you can't give up when things get tough now here's the point that ties in with this if you never heard me read my grandson the story and you came over to the house and you saw him struggling mightily and you saw him getting ready to start to lose it and you heard me say to him, Elijah, I think I can. I think I can. Even though you never saw me reading the book to him, you would know from knowing the story yourself, either I had read him the book, or I knew that somebody else like his mother or his father or his his grandmother was reading the book to him. That I would only say, I think I can, I think I can, if I knew that he knew the story from me or from someone else. Okay? So keep that in mind. And think about, I want to give you two examples where Peter and Paul, so I, I was thinking about, okay, where are examples in the New Testament where the apostles are writing letters to churches that we know are overwhelmingly Gentile churches? And I thought of Corinthians. Corinthians is one, and then I thought of Peter's letters, both of which we've studied over the last few years. 
And I'll give you an, an example of to back that up. Let's turn it to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And even if you didn't see notice this verse, if you think about the problems that they're dealing with in the Corinthian church, they're dealing with problems of idolatry, of gross sexual immorality, of incest. These are not the kind of things that this is. They're not dealing with the requirements of the law or or legalistic righteousness. They're dealing with a completely different set of problems. So, First Corinthians twelve. In verses 1 and 2, it says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I did not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. So in some translations say, when you were Gentiles. So he's, he's addressing them. He says, you were Gentiles and you were carried away to idols in the past, but, but no more. So he's not talking to Jews. This is this addressing the church here. Now, I'll give you an example in Peter. Let's turn to 1 Peter. We were there not too long ago. First Peter 2. Think about this. Verses 9 and 10. Think about who Peter's writing to. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now are the people of God, who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So it says, you people were, were not God's people in the past. He's talking to, it's not, they're not their Jews. It's, and the, you, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. The Jews were the people of God before that. And chapter 4, let's start at verse 1. Read verses 1 to 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, and he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of man, but for the will of God. We've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange you did not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. So what does this tell you about people, people, people that Peter is writing to? It says, they, were, they came out of a Gentile background, they're involved in idolatry, they left it, and now all their former friends saying, hey, what happened to you? Okay? That's 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 what he's 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 talking about. You spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles, living living that kind of a lifestyle. So, so I think Peter's letters and Paul's two letters to the Corinthians are obviously written to Gentiles. Now let's think about the principle of the I think I can I think I can in terms of what Peter and Paul say to stimulate the thinking of the people that they're writing to. Now also keep in mind the book of Leviticus is part of a five book set. It's the law of Moses. So the five books of the law. I remember once I was teaching, I think it was in Hungary, and I felt like a I felt like a total idiot when I said this, so but I, I was teaching in Hungary and I, I would ask the question, who wrote the book of it might have been Exodus or Leviticus, I forget which one it was. And they translated it into Hungarian. In the Hungarian, the book is not known as Exodus. 
and Leviticus, they're known as Second Moses and Third Moses. So I was asking who wrote the book of Exodus or who wrote the book of Leviticus, and they say, well, who wrote the book of Second Moses or Third Moses? And they're all staring at me like, who is this stupid American talking about? What does he think about us? It's like, who's buried in Grant's tomb? It's, 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 it's ridiculous. So, so in a lot of countries and cultures, it's just known as First, Second, Third, Fourth, and Fifth Moses. So that's it's a, it's a set. It's a complete set of five books, sometimes referred to as the Law of Moses or just in shorthand Moses in the New Testament. In Moses, it is written or Moses said, referring to anything in the five books. Jesus in Luke 24, he says, all the, all the prophecies have been fulfilled, written about me in the Law of Moses, the, the Psalms, and the Prophets. So the Law of Moses is the first five books of the Bible. So uh, the Levitical Law, most of it is contained in the book of Leviticus, but there are lots of, you know, beyond this is beyond the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are in Exodus and Deuteronomy, but there are lots of other rules that were given when the Jews were at Mount Sinai, a lot of very specific rules for all kinds of things, and many of them are in Leviticus, but some of them are scattered in in the in, uh, in, in Numbers and Deuteronomy as well. The parts of the of this law. So Peter and Paul think about the arguments that they're making to Gentiles in addressing some extremely practical things. Okay, uh, in First Corinthians. Paul quotes from all, either quotes from or alludes to all five books of the five books of Moses. He, he, all five, and in some cases, he's mentioning things that you would think are not exactly uh, big topics. They're fairly, fairly uh, uh, points that one could easily miss. When he's addressing the issue of providing material support for those engaged in the full-time ministry of preaching the gospel, he goes back to Exodus and Leviticus. In 1 Corinthians 9.13, he says, Don't you know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? That's what it's talking about, what it says in Exodus, and particularly in Leviticus, where it talks about certain of the offerings you bring in, and then the priest was allowed to eat part of them. Part of them would be sacrificed, but the priest would also get a portion of that. It says, well, don't you know that? I mean, the whole idea of, of supporting those who are in the full-time ministry uh, is based right on, right on that, that concept. That was, that was there in the past. Um, 1 Corinthians 9, 9, one of my favorites, it says, It's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? It's a very minor point in the law of Moses, in, uh, which is contained in Deuteronomy 25, 4, where it says, Do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. It says, well, is God concerned about oxen? He's it's right there, right there in, in, in the Law of Moses in Deuteronomy 25.4. In addressing sexual and problem of sexual immorality in the church, Paul takes his points out of the Law of Moses. It's ex, he uses Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, uh, and, uh, and uh, Deuteronomy. He says in, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8, he says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, 
that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us, sacrificed for us. Therefore, let's keep the feast not with the old leaven, or the leaven of malice and wickedness, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So that goes back to Exodus and also Leviticus 23. And explaining that you they need to, he goes on after that in 1 Corinthians 5, and he says you need to kick, you need to expel those who are involved in wickedness from the church. And he quotes from Deuteronomy, where you expel the evil person from among you. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he's saying he uses the whole Exodus as a map of the Christian life, the Exodus story, says they're all baptized in Moses in the cloud of the sea, and then they fell into four or five sins, and most of them didn't make it into the promised land. He says, don't you realize that 23,000 died in one day when they committed sexual immorality? And that goes back to Numbers 25. So he's using these examples from the law of Moses to teach very practical things about staying away from sexual morality and what you do when somebody does get involved in, in serious sin in the church. In, in 2 Corinthians 6, let's turn there, starting verse 11. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you, our heart is wide open. You were not restricted by us, but you're restricted by your own affections. Now in turn, now in now in return for the same, I speak as children, as you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever, and what agreement is the t- between the temple of God and idols? For you are the temple of living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate. Says the Lord, do not touch what is unclean. I will receive you. I'll be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So this is the basis for saying that Christians don't marry people who aren't Christians and, and, then, and then being very careful about people we're closely associated with. It says it's based on don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Well, where does that come from? That's from the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 22.10 says, you shall not plow with an ox or a donkey together. So they knew that. And then the when he says, I will walk among you and I will be your God and you'll be my people, that's from Leviticus 26. So he's using the law of Moses and the imagery. So he says, don't touch any unclean thing. Well, what's an unclean thing? That's all explained in Leviticus chapter 11 So, uh, and elsewhere. So the imagery for teaching about what does it mean to live a holy life is tied up in that. Or first and second Peter, Peter draws from at least, it's, uh, I think Peter, Peter draws from all five books in his two letters as well. Let's turn to... Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. Starting verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that he brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy for I am holy. So this is the 
the teaching, the foundational teaching on why we need to be holy, Peter anchors it in the book of Leviticus, and this is a statement that appears over and over again in Leviticus, several different places. Be holy, for I am holy. He's not teaching, I am holy, therefore you automatically are holy. He says, you need to be holy. You need to live holy lives because I am a holy God. This is the foundation for holiness. It's not following a set of a hundred rules. It's we are conforming to the holiness. The God is a God who is set apart and that we need to be living the same way because that's the nature of the God that we worship. Peter uses the language of Leviticus and the imagery of Leviticus in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, talking about the kind of people that we are supposed to be. Let's read in verse 4. It says, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, and this is, this is Peter says, this is who you are. You are a spiritual priesthood offering up, uh, built together as a spiritual house, as a temple, offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So if you don't appreciate the Old Testament system with the temple and the priests and the sacrifice... This isn't going to mean as much to you as if you do to know what he's talking about. So, uh, back to my earlier question. The Gentile Christians, were they taught the law of Moses? When Peter and Paul are writing to them, explaining answers to challenging questions that they're facing in their midst about how they need to live, the answer, the way that they answered them assumes that they knew all five books of Moses, and they knew them fairly well. They knew them better than most Christians today know them, because they're, they're even picking out some fairly obscure points in those books. So, uh, in the beginning, the Gentile Christians were taught the law of Moses. They were taught the five books. But most Christians today skip over them and think that they're totally irrelevant. So now the second question that I had was, all right, if the Gentile Christians were taught the law of Moses and knew the law of Moses, but they weren't expected to follow the law of Moses since it didn't apply to them, why, why were they taught the law of Moses? Okay? And I think the answer should be somewhat obvious from just looking at the examples that the apostles considered the law of Moses to be extremely useful and practical. Paul talks about being thoroughly equipped, and that's how Peter and Paul use it in a very practical sense. I also think about James when he's dealing with a problem of prejudice in the church is that the, the wealthy people were being treated one way and the poor people are being treated another way. So he's dealing with a problem of disunity and judging people on the basis of outward things that the world values instead of looking at all of us as equal and equal in the eyes of God as brothers and sisters. Let's turn to James chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 to see how he answers that, how he addresses that problem. 
So after talking about this problem of them favoring the wealthy who are, in many cases, exploiting them, in verse 80 says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, that's Leviticus 19.18, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So he uses, it's the same thing, he's using, the, he's using the law of Moses, he's using Leviticus to teach foundational things about how Christians are supposed to be relating to each other. So back to this question of why it's important for us today, why it's important for Gentiles to know the law of Moses even though we're not bound by it. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 2. Starting in verse 6. It says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all the trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. So he says here, the handwritten requirements, it's referring to the law of Moses, he says that that was nailed to the cross, that our sin was crucified with Christ for those who, who are following him, and it says also the law of Moses was nailed to the cross is no longer of any effect. So as he's, he's addressing the problem, he says, don't let anybody go back and tell you you need to follow the law of Moses again. But he's saying those things are not the reality, but they were a shadow of what has now come. Circumcision was foreshadowing baptism. It's cutting away the flesh representing putting off the sins of the flesh. But by understanding the shadows, we can better appreciate the reality. He uses the shadow of circumcision to talk about the reality of baptism. We're not to follow the shadows any longer, but in the current situation, if you understand the shadows, you'll better appreciate the reality. That's how Peter and Paul were using Levitical law. They saw shadows in those teachings. When it says, don't plow with an ox and a donkey together, that was a foreshadowing something. 
When it's saying, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, that was foreshadowing something. All of these things in the law were shadowing things. And I think about when I, uh, if you ever see a silhouette of, uh, let's say, uh, and when I was in, when I was very young in school, we would make a cutout uh, shadow images, silhouettes of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln in February. And if you see the silhouette of either one of those guys, you'll recognize you'll recognize the person when he shows up. Well, you'll recognize a portrait uh, or or a or a three D model when it shows up. So that's the idea. And in Hebrews chapter ten. Hebrews writer talks about this as well. And this is a good introduction to what we're going to be looking at in Leviticus. Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 25. This whole idea of shadows is repeated again here. Hebrews chapter 10, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices which offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then they would not have ceased to be offered. Uh, for then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshippers once purified would have had no more conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the laws. Then he says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that it may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and repeating, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before... This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and lawless deeds I'll remember no more. So that's from uh, uh, Jeremiah 31. That's uh, chapter 38 in Septuagint. Now where there is remission of, uh, of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some 
but exhorting one another daily and so much more as you see the day approaching. So again, it says here that, that, that this the law of Moses was a shadow of the good things to come. Uh, those sacrifices were a reminder of sin. They could not in themselves take away sin. The blood of animals could not take away sin. Hebrews, in Hebrews uh, uh, 10 verses 5 to 10, it's a quote from Psalm 40, which is designated Psalm 39, uh, 40 uh, verses 6 to 8. And if you go back and look in your Bible and find that it doesn't match, the whole point he's making there is he's saying, uh, uh, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. And then he makes the point in verse 10, by that will we been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. If you look back in your Old Testament and find there's no mention of the body, it's because he's quoting from a text of the Septuagint. And if you look there, that's where it talks about that. So um, another reason why um, uh, many of us like to use the Septuagint when we're comparing the Old Testament and the New Testament so they match up much better. Uh, so, for the next time we get together, I want to encourage everyone to read Hebrews 9 and 10 and then start reading through the beginning of Leviticus, at least the first six chapters. My plan is to go through the first ten chapters next week, so we'll be going and moving at a pretty good clip. Some people will be very, very happy to hear that. Uh, so, but keep in mind what he says right here. God had no desire, according to what it says in the Old Testament from Psalm 40, uh, God had no desire for these offerings. He took no pleasure in them. Think about that when you're reading this. According from this passage here, we know that now. They couldn't take away sin. They were foreshadowing what would happen in the future. They're foreshadowing the body of Christ, which ultimately would be offered once for all time to take away sins. Jeremiah spoke about a new covenant that would come in Jeremiah 31 or, or 38, as I mentioned before, in the in the Septuagint. But uh, and he's quoting that here: is that the, the old covenant was not going to do it. There had to be a new covenant, as it said in, in the scriptures. And in the story of the, the tabernacle and the offerings, Jesus is represented in many different ways. We see him in the body of the animal sacrificed. As we're reading through Leviticus, we see it in the blood that was sprinkled to cleanse the, 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 the objects there that was sprinkled on the people, that was sprinkled on the tabernacle and the vessels. It talks about that in Hebrews 9. The blood... The blood was, was to, to purify. We see Jesus in the high priest, who was the anointed one. He was anointed with oil. He is the high priest, the anointed one. But he's not like the priest descended from Aaron, who had to back up their, had to show their genealogy. He was a priest of a more ancient and greater order, like Melchizedek, by the power of an indestructible life. We also see him in the curtain that separated the holy place where the priest ministered from the most holy place 
where the Ark of the Covenant was, which represented heaven itself, as it says in Hebrews 9. This is the, the throne of God, basically, and that was what was ripped apart when Jesus died on the cross. So we see Jesus in the veil, in the high priest, in the, in the animals that were sacrificed, in the blood that is sprinkled to purify uh, many, many places. So as I mentioned before, for the next time we get together, now you've got a heads up. I hope that you have been at least open-minded to the idea that actually there are things in the book of Leviticus. We don't have to follow those laws anymore, but there are valuable lessons in the law of Moses that we can learn from that are helpful helpful to us. So I encourage read Hebrews 9 and 10 and the first uh, uh, 6 to 10 chapters. And some things to notice as you're reading, don't get discouraged by all the repetitive discussion about offerings. Just notice a few things at a high level. We'll talk about these. There are five different types of offerings. They're all, they're all different. They're all a little different, and they're for different purposes. You'll notice that some of them, part of the offering was eaten by the priests, which Paul talks about in Corinthians. But others, like the burnt offering, were completely consumed. That was, that was not... Not, 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 none of that was eaten up. Uh, and then there's a little detail I noticed this time that I hadn't seen before with the grain offering. The grain offering, or sometimes they call it the cereal offering. The grain offering, it says don't offer it with honey. Because either off, you offer the grain or you offer flour or you bake a cake. But it says you don't put any honey in the cake when you're offering it to God. You can't put any honey in there, no sweetener. But you must put something else in there. You must put salt in there. And I want to ask you the question. Why is they, are the people required to put salt in that offering? What's the significance of salt? What was that foreshadowing? What is that for us? So just leave that. I'll just park that for you to think about. And then uh, I hope to get through to Nadab and Abayu. And they were struck dead for what they did for offering unauthorized fire before the Lord. And they asked the question, what are we supposed to learn from that story? And this is a, it says, everything in the past <coughs> written to teach us, we're supposed to learn something from the story of Nadab and Abayu and ask, ask ourselves, what is that? So that's the plan. The 27 chapters in Leviticus, and I'm planning to cover the first 10 in the next time we get together. Amen.